and welcome. My name is Georg Dietz. My name is Karin Patterson. And this is the podcast Start Wearing Details to Follow. It still feels new. <laughs> <laughs> I said that the last time, but it still feels new. This used to be anger management. It feels good. It feels, it feels good. good. New is good. No? New is good. And uh, I like deta- especially details to follow. Can you tell the story again of the of the title? It's, uh, it used to be called anger management. Now it's called details to fo- uh, Start Wearing Details to Follow, which is the Jewish telegram. Yeah. Um, makes fr- sense. Makes sense historically. Yeah. Um, it was dedicated to us, given to us by our friend Igor Levit, who's also responsible or not responsible, but who's <laughs> also generous enough to play um, the lovely introduction. The lovely introduction, which is um, the People United uh, variations uh, by um, Frederick Jevsky, the um, American composer, the American communist composer, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, George, I come I, on. I, I, you I didn't, didn't I, tell me this. <laughs> this is the... F- Oh, oh, come on. How can I, how can Could, I, couldn't Igor find a social democratic composer? <laughs> I, I think there's one. <laughs> anyway. So, um, I love we, the new title. Yes. Um, and can I also say before, because I'm responsible for promotion here, uh, please go to iTunes and rate our um, podcast with the highest rating that you can think of. That's important for um, visibility. And if you live in Stockholm or if you live in Sweden um, or, or if you Berlin. live in Berlin. Uh, we have good news. You, or if you love to travel. To those lovely places, Berlin and Stockholm. We will take this podcast to stage. Yes, because the demand was so big. Yes. People want us to go on stage, mm. no? Yeah, people people united. People, people united yeah. <laughs> to go on stage. So we'll have a first, uh, which is really interesting, which is really, really um, how you can take the podcast experience yes. live. And this is a, co- a cooperation between... Kulturhuset Stadsteatern in in Stockholm and and Volksbühne Berlin. Um, and the first installment is early December. We're not sure yet. We'll um, be back with the dates. Yes, uh, in Stockholm. And please, if you have suggestions for names, people you would like us to talk to, tweet to us under the hashtag details to follow. Yes. And who did we talk to this week? Yasha Munk, uh, one of the, I guess, leading experts, book author. Harvard researcher, uh, New America Foundation fellow, uh, one of the leading experts on populism, <laughs> populism, <laughs> <laughs> on the authoritarian challenges to liberal democracy. Yeah, and we did, we really discussed the term populism. We and you challenged him, and I did too, actually, on this in this conversation. Yes, in your very charming way, you yes. did. Yeah. So, and we fought a little, but that's not of interest to um, the, the listeners. Oh, maybe it is, because it's really about um, I think getting a perspective on what possible uh, approaches to a left alternative could be, yeah. as, as our friend Roberto Unger would call it. Um, it's about alternatives, and it's about na- the way forward. Yeah, and trying to um, understand, understand the roots of what's happening. Yes. So start worrying, and details to follow. Shamuk, thanks for meeting with us. My pleasure. Uh, you're in Stockholm to give a um, talk on populism. Indeed. And um, we met last night and you said that you were always the gloomiest guy in the room. I don't think I said that. I think somebody someone said that about said, me. Someone said that about <laughs> you. <laughs> that wasn't me. You did refuse that claim. You didn't I refuse, I refuse that claim. claim. You no. do refuse the claim? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Because my first question would be, why are you the gloomiest guy in the room? What are you gloomy about? I'm just but a then... depressing guy. What can I tell you? 
Uh, well, I mean, I think, you know, the funny thing is that people have overtaken me a little bit, I think. I mean, it used to be basically, you know, before Donald Trump won, before Britain verged to Brexit, that uh, I was really worried about the way our politics was going um, because I saw the slow rise of populist parties in different places because in some of my research I showed that people don't give the same support to democracy that they used to, that they're getting more open to authoritarian alternatives to democracy. Um, and so sort of I went around like Cassandra saying, you know, we may be in for a rough ride over the next years. And people called me a Cassandra and I responded, but Cassandra was right, damn it. Yeah. Um, so so perhaps the, the ascription is from that time. I think at this point, actually, I'm uh, very worried about where we're at. Um, I think that um, it, we can't take for granted that we'll be able to win against this populism or that our political systems will survive that. Mm. Um but there's other people who are starting to talk about civil war and all kinds of things. So mm. compared to them, I don't think I'm as gloomy. Can we, can we, um, sort of, I mean, I know that, what you will ask now that you, that about you, populism. No, yeah, no. that will come eventually. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> so worry is good because that's what we do here. We worry. Um, and, but it's also, and manage details. your anger. Uh, yeah, well, we worry now more. <laughs> so, so you're sort of the ideal guest, but maybe you can say specifically or more precisely, um, what's that we, sort of what's our politics? I mean, there's, you live in the U.S., but you come and, and in England, so that's a difference in politics already. And then you're an expert in a way about so far. you wrote, wrote a lot about European politics in recent uh, months about mm -hmm. Spain and France and Germany, the German election, and eventually, I think, in the, in the, for the sake of precision, I would just really be interested in your usage of the word populism is it still so does it make sense that mm -hmm. does it have a history so where, where it made sense and now it doesn't anymore it's a lot of questions i know but yeah um, that's uh, a lot of questions with, with an hour no okay. um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll talk to you guys until i have to <laughs> take my car to the airport um uh i, I think you're skeptical of of whether populism makes sense right and 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 yeah, I'm, yeah. I, yeah so no, i'm not it's just I, an imprecise word and it's used by people for the sake of imposition at, at one point, it was mm -hmm. about uh, left and right populism, which sort of uh, made up the strange sort of architecture of, of threat to the middle, which yeah, is yeah. not the same, I would argue. So if it's about values and what you, what you stand for, but that's maybe something you're also skeptical. You're very skeptical of the left uh, sometimes, or a lot of times, it seems. Let's answer now. Um, <laughs> but I'm skeptical of, of left-wing opponents of liberal democracy. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, so, I'm, but I'm, I'm, as, as, as... Hugo Chavez is not your friend, Georg. No, he's not. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say that publicly, no. But, but the question is really, so if, if the, if the word populism, as it, as, as populist wave goes on and on and on, it doesn't, doesn't, uh, uh, shun any definition of what, sort of, who's claiming, who's, who's framing that, that view? What's the power, so, of, who, what's the middle that says this is something, threatening that's somehow miss, missing i think in the discourse that's that's my main problem right. with it. i mean look i think any term that both refers to a, a big complicated phenomenon and any term that has a political uses is always going to be contested right we probably couldn't sit down and define democracy here we would have different views about what it is but that doesn't make us say oh because perhaps there's no such thing as democracy right um, and i think that's true of populism as well i mean there's people who use it in different ways and some of them use it in um, insincere ways or in confused ways but that doesn't mean that there isn't a core to populism so here's what I think the core of populism is it's not about 
shared values. It's not about shared public policies. When you look at what Donald Trump wants, what Marine Le Pen wants, what the Sveriges Demokratna here in Sweden want, what the Alternative for Deutschland wants, what Narendra Modi, Recep Erdogan, all of these are populists, and they clearly have very different values, very different visions for what the states should do. But what they share is a political vocabulary and a moral imagination. What they share is the conviction that all of the problems in our politics are just but not because the world is complicated and it's difficult to deliver people fast economic growth and to reconcile our differences. It's because elites are corrupt and self-serving. They care more about minorities or deviants or intellectuals or billionaires than they care about people like you. And so all we need to do to solve our problems is for me, the populace, to be elected, to come into government, to give voice to the true voice of the people, to represent the real people and solve all of these problems. And of course, once they're in power, it turns out that politics isn't so simple after all. It turns out that they can't solve all of those problems. And so what do they do? They start to blame. So they can't say, it's my fault. They can't say, well, actually, you know what? I've learned that I was wrong in my political imagination. They have to say, well, the reason why I haven't been able to live on my promises is because the press keeps criticizing me. It's because judges stand in the way of me doing what I want. It's because we have foreign enemies. We have saboteurs inside the country who aren't part of a real people. Right, um, and and that I think is a coherent both set of vocabularies and imaginations, and it inexorably leads to these quite troubling results. Now, not every person in the world who has been called a populist at one time or another under that definition is a populist. I don't think Elizabeth Warren is a populist in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. But I do think with all the people I mentioned earlier, from Modi to Erdogan to uh, Nigel Farage to, 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 to Marine Le Pen, are, are populists and they're dangerous in those ways and for those reasons. So I'm thinking about the, the, so the people you're mentioning now, um, I guess the thing that um, the idea that they're all promoting uh, to be a little bit more specific than the kind of broad um, word populism is that they're nativists and they're like ultra nationalists in a way and they're to the right on the spectrum so i'm also i'm i'm kind of giving you support here uh nice, george nice. for once for once <laughs> in a while for just this one time and i'm because i do think um i do agree that the, the term uh sometimes is confusing because when you do look at these movements they all agree on the thing you ended your um what you said with namely finding people to blame finding groups of people often you know foreigners ethnic minorities to blame for problems it, it's not the elites it, you know in general terms it's mm -hmm. it's not economic elites it's uh the underdog the foreigner uh the most but it can be right i mean so i think that you're right that the people i mentioned were all yes. far-right populists yeah but i think when you look at hugo chavez um, and a lot of the sort of far-left populism. Mm. It's the same. That's that's where the line goes between left-wing politics that uh, I'm attracted to mm. and that I support and left-wing politics that scares me. It's I precisely when you start to claim that the world is really simple and you start to blame um, a couple of evil guys for all the problems and you say all it takes is for common sense to go in and solve everything. Sure. And that's exactly what you see with Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and all of the results that's had with other countries in Latin America, including Ecuador and so on, and increasingly parts of Europe as well. Um, you see it. But isn't that part of the imprecision? So I'm, I'm curious about 
So if, Where's uh, the imposition? Be more precise imposition in is, your charge of imposition uh, here. I, th I think the imposition is that you... Um, maybe imposition is the wrong word, that's true. But, so, but, but I know from your writing that you say, for example, that the EU is part of a problem. It's a liberal... It's, it's anti-democratic liberalism, in a way, as it's structured. There's no democratic foundation. So, yeah, would you agree? Yes and no. Yes and no, but, but more yes. No, ask a question, when I'll respond. So, so, so <laughs> the, 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 the... This is fun. The assumption, <laughs> the, assumption, <laughs> the assumption of populism, as it's brought forth, is that in the middle everything is okay. And that's the story of pre-populism, that in the middle nothing is okay. So that's a, that's the story of the financial crisis. That's the story of austerity politics. That's the story of the crisis of the EU. The middle has a problem. Representative democracy has a real problem. I would say. Sure, I agree. So the it, it seems that that this is being um, in, in my mind used. The, the discourse of populism is. Maybe not intentionally, but 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 as a justified critique of of lack yes. of representation, of yes. lack of democracy. Yeah, but, but so that's but, my problem with it. But you see, I don't I don't get that. I think that's I don't get that as a response, right? Because I agree that there's real reasons for populism, and that in order to deal with populism, we have to understand what the real reasons. For that, are. I know you're a smart guy. I know, I know, so that's why we're talking but, to but, you. But, but no, no, but, no, no. But, but, but what I don't understand. Thank you for shushing him. <laughs> they, I love this dynamic. Um, what I don't understand is why, if there's reasons for it, it's not a thing, right? I think populism is a coherent category. There's a set of pol politicians and and political movements that share modus operandi, that share vocabulary, that are very similar to each other in these ways and that are quite dangerous for the survival of yes. the good things in our political system. Now, yes. it's true that there are some people who use that term in a sort of like, oh, well, this is all bad. You know, if only these guys went around, everything would be great. So let's go back to business as usual. But the fact that some people use the term for those purposes doesn't mean that the term isn't coherent. Yes. The term is coherent. They just use that term in order to justify some bad things. So that's like saying that you know, there's no such thing as a free market because some people who talk about the free market want economic policies that I think would be disastrous. That doesn't make us say there's no such thing as a free market. It makes us say, well, perhaps a completely free market isn't quite right. And, you know, we want to tell it in certain ways. I, I guess I would argue, and also coming from a tradition, uh, coming from Swedish social democracy that started out, um, many would argue, as a populist movement. As, I mean, as a legitimate critique of, of economic elites, you could say, and as a, a you know, a bunch of agitators uh, kind of channeling the, the will of the people. And they, I mean, that's how they argued at the time. And then slowly it, it transformed into, uh, you know, uh, another type of movement, a proper party structure and so on. So I'm, I'm, I'm also, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I'm, I'm wondering sometimes if it w wouldn't be m more precise and more correct to say that the, the real challenges to, to liberal democracy is actually the racism and the nativism and the nationalist, uh, the, the extreme nationalism rather than, I mean, some people do say that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Podemos or Syriza in, in, in Greece are the same as, uh, you know, these racist, uh, right-wing extremist parties, and it's all you know part of this populist uprising. While I would argue that some of this is truly dangerous to liberal democracy, and some of it may, might be a necessary corrective to uh, what's been going on. I think Venezuela is not a national. Cor no, national no, no. Cor I agree with no, you, but, but that's important. Yes, it is right? important because yes. that is not yes. a right-wing movement. 
Sure. It's not no, a I, xenophobic I, movement. I'm not and defending so, Hugo Chavez. Right, but so if Hugo Chavez is similar... Yeah, no, I realize, I realize yes, you're not, yeah. right? But but I think we need to take seriously. If you yes. say, oh, it's all about racism, there's no such thing as populism, yeah, yeah. then how do you explain Hugo Chavez? And how do you explain the kind of danger that he represents? Now, when you talk about Elizabeth Warren, it's clear to me that she's not a populist. When you talk about Bernie Sanders, I think he has certain elements of populism, but he doesn't worry me overly much. When I start to look at Podemos... And certainly Cinque Stelle, mm. which yes. started on the left sure. and has gradually yeah. moved to the right. Yeah. I'm pretty worried about what those movements would mean for democracy if they get mm. into government. Mm. For reasons that are informed by what's mm. happened in Latin America, right? Mm. And so I think that's precisely so I think that, that that disagreement is important, but that's precisely why I think no, there's something more to it. Now, one of the reasons why I'm scared of far left populism is mm. that I think if our politics becomes a competition between far-left populism and far-right populism, yeah. I know which one's going to win. Mm. It's going to be the far-right populism. Mm. And that's a bad thing. But but I think the answer is to eschew populism altogether while affronting in a serious way the big structural drivers, including the stagnation of living standards for average people and a whole bunch of other things that have gotten us into a situation where the populists can win. Can you talk uh, to, let's leave this discussion, uh, this part of the discussion, can you talk then about the drivers? Can you be, talk a little bit more about that, uh, what you see? Because this is such a complex, I mean, is it, people talk about identity, uh, the culture wars, it's a backlash against globalization, it's living standards, it's um, what have you. Uh, so w- what do you think are the most important drivers? Uh, yeah, so first of all, I think there's a process. whole bunch of sort of weird fake debates um, going on in this space, right? So the first thing is that a lot of people just look at their own local context and they say, you know, in Germany, Georg, a lot of people say, well, the reason for populism is there's no real alternatives between the political parties, right? When you go to the United States and people say, well, the reason for populism is that we have these really polarized parties. And so that doesn't, you know, that doesn't, it, this two things can't both be true at the same time, or at least it's difficult to see how they mm. would be. They can logically be true at the same time, but that doesn't seem plausible. Um, in a similar way, uh, we need to realize that the world isn't necessarily monocausal, mm. right? That just because one explanation is true doesn't mean that the other explanation cannot also be going on at the same time. In fact, to get something as complex to happen in as many places as it is at the moment, it's logical to assume that there's a number of drivers of it, right? And so, so, so when I try to figure out what I think the causes are, I started to look for things that were happening in most countries to varying degrees, but to some degree in each, um, and that could reinforce each other in certain ways. And so I think there's sort of three things, right? The first is economic. It's about the stagnation of living standards for ordinary people. So uh, the American case is the most extreme. From 1945 to 1960, the living standard of the average American doubles. From 1960 to 1985, it doubles again, and since 1985, it's essentially been stagnant. Now, that makes a difference to how people think about politics. We didn't love politicians, we didn't completely trust them, but we used to say, well, you know, a little skeptical of those guys, but they're sticking to the end of the deal, right? In the end, they're delivering for me. And now people say, you know what? I've worked hard all of my life, and I'm not really doing any better than my parents. Um, My kids are probably going to do worse than me. I assume I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. Yes. Thank you. Um, so let's you have to swear. I have to swear. Yeah. Good. It's a competition. The worst swear. Uh, we'll see. Um, you know, let's throw some shit against the wall and see what sticks. Right? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the people who are going to vote for the populists are the poorest people. We've always seen that very poorest tend to be uh, less attracted to those kinds of movements. 
Um, the most affluent and upwardly mobile also tend to be less um, attracted to it, and it's often the people in the middle. Lower middle class, petit bourgeois, people people who are afraid of, uh, of, of, of declining economically, people who are in regions of the country that may be quite affluent, but that aren't as dynamic, which have fewer highly educated people and so on. Those are the, the regions, those are the kinds of people who end up voting for the populists. All right, that's number one. Number two is culture and immigration, right? Um, you're looking, certainly in Europe, at a bunch of countries that were founded as mono-ethnic and monocultural. It was very clear what it is to be a Swede or a German or an Italian. That's even not true. For well, Germans, it's not even true. We know that. I mean, that's the, that's the perception of, of nationalism. But I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing... I mean, you're, you're describing the self-perception of, yeah. of, of nationalists. Yeah, but the failure, obviously, is that Germany is a migrant country, has always been. Poles uh, coming uh, in, in the 19th century, so making up large parts of... of There's of been moments of this, right? But I mean, it's very... I mean, A, it's people who were but, but physically indistinguishable, yeah. right? You couldn't tell... You can't tell yeah, physically skin. with somebody... Yeah, yeah so you can't yeah. tell physically... And B, it was actually not that great numbers of people. And then, thanks to World War II, the country was extremely homogeneous after 1945, Right. So, yeah, yeah. so I, I, I think there's more to but anyway, in terms of self-perception, you yeah, agree, yeah. right? Yeah, but, yeah. but Germans have an idea of who a German is and what that looks like. So it doesn't mean sort of blonde and blue-eyed, right? You look like a German even if you're not blonde and blue-eyed. Yeah. But, but, but certainly it was an idea of exclusion, that if you're black, if you're from the Middle East, uh, you're certainly not a German, right? If your name is Ali, you're not a German, right? And so, as we've had immigration on, on a larger scale than, than countries like Germany and Sweden have had before in their histories um, over the past 50 years, that idea has been challenged. And so some people welcome that and celebrate that, right? But, but some people don't, and they're resentful against it, and they're fearful of it. And that's obviously one of the big drivers, I think, of this populist movement. Again, it doesn't mean that people in areas which have the most immigrants necessarily vote for the populist most. Often it's areas that have historically had very little immigration, but have had a good number of immigrants come in recently, relative to the stock that is there. Um, that's clearly one big driver. And these two things reinforce each other, by the way. right? So I think it used to be that when people were more economically optimistic, when they were organized in nice trade unions that you would like, Karen, yes. um, and so on, you, know, you ask them, who are you? And they said, I'm a foreman of a factory. Um, you know, I'm a member of a union, uh, I'm a welder, right? And now as they've lost some of that meaning in their jobs, even if they still make okay money, um, you ask them, who are you? And say, well, you know what? I'm Swedish and I don't like those uh, refugees coming in. Right? Okay, and the third thing that sort of, um, if I was Tom Friedman, I would say, you know, it's like an enzyme that makes everything explode <laughs> or some other mixed metaphor. Um, Please don't uh, rest. Please don't. Tom Friedman. I'm so Please sorry. Do. Tom, I apologize. I apologize. Um, now we have news. He's an avid listener of our podcast. Yes. I'm sure he is. Hello, Tom. I'm sure he is. Hi, Tom. Um, the mustache understands. Um, the, 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 <laughs> no, no, not even in news. My plan of Number three. Uh, the, the, the exploding enzyme, yes, in, in a Friedman-esque term, is, uh, is social media and the internet. Right? So you see um, the rise of these technologies that democratize communication in a very serious way and that mean that, you know, 25 years ago, guys like you two would have had quite a lot of control on what can and can't be said, collectively with others, right? Um, 
And to some degree, that was bad. I mean, to some degree, it meant that an elite could sort of set things and so on. But, but to some degree, it also meant that, you know, things that clearly were not true could be kept out of public discussion to a much greater degree, that hate speech could be isolated more and so on. And this is not the case anymore. Now, anybody on social media, even if you only have 50 followers, but you post something that one-tenth of your followers share, and one-tenth of their followers shared, over the course of an hour, you can reach millions of people. Right? Can, I, can I, before, uh, that's super relevant to everything that we talk about here. The podcast, and I think we should sort of go more deeply into that, but but for listeners' sake, maybe, or, or just for the sake of clarity, I would be interested in your sort of motive to work on this subject or your biographic background. Um, um, one thing that, that I think people struggle with to understand populism, right-wing populism these days, is, is, is how, how it connects to fascism. So is that, how is it different? How is it alike? And so if your recount of... Uh, account of, of who, who's voting for, for, for those parties is, I think, I guess, pretty uh, parallel to, to fascist voters. So, so there's um, so the petit bourgeois and, mm. and, and, and the big industry. So it's just profiting, and, 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 and the poorest they don't vote for that for them. So, so your your background as as a German Jew, sort of um, formative element of your thinking, uh, is that a motive to to work? On that subject, or is that a motive to, to sort of stick to that rational middle, sort of to, um, to to defend that rational middle, which which I find admirable. So mm. don't, you don't have to smile at me. So I mean as a compliment. <laughs> so and I, and I know that from 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 Jewish friends, sort of that they have that they sort of, that what they what they miss is that rationality in discourse and the rationality in politics, and that's something that Germans sort of rarely have because it's it's all loud and, 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 and luminous and, mm. and, and, and strange so so the clarity in that in that democratic process that you sort of defend against populism how, how is that connected to your biography well I mean I think it's true that you know historically liberal democracy has been good for the Jews and just about nothing else has right I mean so so I think you know obviously um, when you look at movements of the far right, or for that matter, of the far left, they have persecuted Jews mm. in, in in real ways, mm. and, and I'm sure that at some level informs my sort of historical understanding of this. Um, and perhaps it's part of what's made me a little bit more sensitive to the rise of these populist movements and so on in the early 2000s, when other people have sort of wrote them off as oh well, and and you know my family has been in the wrong place at the wrong time too many generations for me to sort of just shrug my shoulder so so so, so it's possible that it's sort of informed by that right um finding your perfect home was hard but thanks to burrow furnishing it has never been easier burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium durable materials including stain and scratch resistant fabrics so they're not just comfortable and stylish they're built to last Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I don't think that it's, um, you know, and, and it, it has probably informed my understanding of how complicated it is to build a sense of an inclusive patriotism, right? So I actually um, 
am now much more, you know, growing up in Germany and in various ways feeling conflicted about how German I am, how German I'm perceived as being as soon as I mentioned that I'm Jewish, um, you know, was quite skeptical of nationalism. Um, and I think at this point, I actually am trying to talk to people on the left uh, and to convince them to reappropriate a form of nationalism, an inclusive patriotism. Because I think if we leave that space completely to the right, it's going to be turned to its worst uses. Um, and instead, we need to think about how we can build a sense of togetherness that includes people across racial, and ethnic, and so on lines, um, religious lines. Um, so yeah, I think it informs my thinking in most complicated ways, but I'm not sure I can put it more precisely than that. And how would you, I mean, there's also a question to Karen, so because um, we argued a lot about nationalism mm -hmm. uh, or yeah. not, so, and, and, and I see that people like Danny Roderick, so from an economic perspective, say there has to be globalization without globalism, so, so there has to be a national basis mm -hmm. for, for justice and, and nation, state as an agent in that, and, and, and I can see that, but, but I also see the dangers of, uh, I, I'm, I'm just questioning, is this a fiction? So if I, Well, that, 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 that you think that you can reclaim that or is it, so is it, or is it I a think necessary it's, step I think it's a necessary I, I, for me it's just it's what we have I mean it's the structures it is the structures we, that we have to work with and if and maybe going to, back to the discussion on populism and, and what correctives we need at this mm -hmm. point in time where people feel that I don't know the people who represent them are not legit legitimate or uh, you know there seems to be this void uh, where people are feeling very lost and uh, Danny Roderick is talking about hyper globalization and and that you know um, I hate the word elites but sometimes it's it's good to use it that there has been these policies uh, who have been beneficial for parts of society but that has left uh, other parts behind both in terms of economics but also in terms of representation and in my thinking and maybe uh, it's close to what you're saying it's uh, you need to look for a new mandate I mean if yeah, you don't yeah. have the mandate you need to go back and just look for it and and, uh, and ask people to give you uh, a new mandate and I, how that is done has to be on a national level because it's, it's what we have at this point but I wanted to go back and ask you about the three um, You said uh, it's about economics, it's about culture, and it's about social media. And I'm interested in all three of those. But uh, we're in Sweden now, and you talked about the stagnation of living stand standards. Mm -hmm. And this is what's... Um, and it's less obviously the case here as it, it is now. Well, it's, it's the opposite, actually, in Sweden, because, the, I mean, we do have had uh, a situation where the middle class uh, and also, I mean, everybody has actually... Um, been sharing the wealth that has been mm -hmm. created. We do have uh, inequalities on the rise, but it's not the case that the middle class is kind of left behind or has had stagnated stagnation of, of, of wages, on, on the contrary. So I'm just trying to... It doesn't really seem to add up uh, for for Sweden and... Well, let me, let me... Could you talk a little bit about Try and that? respond to that, right? Yeah. I mean, so, I, so, 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 so first, I do think that You know, the, the nature of populism in a country is determined in part by the relative strength of these different factors, yeah. right? So in places where the economic element is strongest, you tend to get more left-wing populism. Mm. And in a case where the cultural element is strongest, you get to tend, tend to get more right-wing populism, right? And the sort of broadly 
you know, this is, this is a slightly broad statement. It's not true in every case, right? But it's not a surprise that in Spain and Greece you end up with a more sort of left-wing form of populism, and in Sweden you end up with a more sort of right-wing form of populism being mm. dominant, right? The other thing is that 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 I don't quite know enough about the Swedish case to explain mm-hmm. it, but but I do think that you can still make a case about how people perceive their economic future and how content they are over present, right? I mean, economic stability, democratic stability may have been a really exceptional period, right? And it coincided with a moment of exceptional economic growth. If you grew up in Sweden, you know, if you were born in 1948, you would probably not have had a car, right? You would probably not have had central heating. You would have, you know, lived in a relatively small place, right? And then over the course of your lifetime, most probably if you were middle class or ascended to the middle class, which was easy to do in that generation, Mm. you would end your life with, you know, a house with a car or two in the garage and a home entertainment system, and right? I mean, it was a radical transformation of your life opportunities, right? Probably for the first 15, 20 years of your life, you never went abroad or at least not beyond sort of the immediate Scandinavian neighborhood. And, you know, once you were in your 30s and 40s, you would regularly go on a holiday to Italy or Spain and so on, right? Even in terms of, you know, how long somebody who was born in 1900 versus somebody who was born in 1950 could expect to live. Mm. Big transformation, right? And that's no longer the case. Now, there's some countries where it's extreme, where Mm. literally, you know, when you look at white um, working class males in the States, they haven't had any improvements for 40 years, but that's the extreme case. Or black. Well, no, they've actually improved much more economically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, but then when you look at at Sweden, um, okay, so you've had sixty percent or something improvement over the course of the last twenty twenty five mm. years. That's a very real improvement, right? But it's not the kind of transformational change that you had in the post war decades. Mm. And so it may be that part of what you need for this really functioning democracy in a non-mass society where you don't have trade unions being as structured as we used to be and all of those things is this radical kind of economic improvement that we're no longer going to have. So one way of thinking about this is that political scientists used to say, look, if you're um, an established democracy that has changed governments with free and fair elections a couple of times and you have affluence at about fourteen, dollars $15,000 GDP per capita in current terms, you're safe. And I'm increasingly wondering whether what it takes is an absolute level of affluence, in which case we're going to be fine, because mm. Sweden certainly is a very affluent country, and even, you know, Italy is still a very affluent country, or whether it is ongoing improvement of your living standard that it takes for democracy to be stable, and and rapid improvement of living standards. Mm. And if that's what it is, then we may be in for trouble. And I don't think there's sufficient historical data to distinguish those two. Yeah. And uh, I mean, adding to that, uh, to what you're saying, uh, the uh, possible uh, outlook that, as you say, that we'll have a long period now of of stagnant growth that many economists Mm. are are predicting. So that's troubling. But um, I guess my my question is, looking looking at all these countries that we've been talking about, the U.S., I mean, from the U.S. to India to Sweden, I mean, the difference is, however you turn or twist the argument, the differences are much uh, bigger than the uh, similarities here. Uh, And 
I guess I come I, I, coming from the left, and I'm, I'm an economist by training. I, I always. I'm always in favor of macro arguments and the fundamentals, but I'm wondering if we haven't underestimated the third point that you were mentioning, namely the one thing that is uh, the same in all of these countries, the new information infrastructure, social media, the new uh, architecture for outrage that we -hmm. have built. And that there seems to be, and I think Anne Applebaum said this on our podcast, there seems to be this mismatch between just the, the level of rage that people feel and the fundamentals. Uh, look, sure. yeah, comparing to the to the 30s, I mean, we haven't had a hyperinflation, we haven't had famines, we haven't had, mm. you know, wars. It's yes, we do have globalization, and we do have a backlash against, um, and things are changing fairly quickly. But there just seems to be uh, this discrepancy between the intensity of feeling and what's actually going on. And I'm wondering if uh, if you can talk a little bit more about how you see. Um, the internet and social media and this thing, uh, how we talk to each other, how that affects um, politics and yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it look it has been a massive transformation, right? I mean, people always go back and reach for this metaphor of inventing of a printing press, and uh, sort of for a long time I was a little skeptical about it. It's a little bit of a yeah, I remember talking to so, you. So, you so, so like go back. I mean, I, I go all out now. You know, a little bit of a Friedman-esque comparison, <laughs> but um. Uh, but actually, the more I thought about it, the more convincing it seemed to me, right? So the, yeah. the printing press was invented in the late 15th century. Um, uh, Georg is a great Martin Luther expert, knows yes. a lot about it. It changed everything. Um, yeah. It did change everything. It did change but everything. It, but it changed and we it. had wars for 150 years. And we had wars for 150 years. That's great. Yes, this is yeah, very important. To the new age. Yeah. But it was actually much slower than something like Facebook, right? So a dozen years into the invention of a printing press, Perhaps 500 people had held a printed book in their hands and it was still located in the city of Mainz, right? A dozen years into the invention of Facebook, the platform has 2 billion active users. Yeah, but, but Luther, but Luther himself was also he was a million, so a bestseller by, by the millions. So it is really comparable. You had the elites of but, guarding knowledge, uh, the church, and yeah, then you had really hundreds of thousands of people sort of who are able to, to look at the word all of a sudden and they say what that, that's not the same but, 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 but so the, the, so the printing press was invented in 1492 right yeah when when were the thesis published yeah 15 family years ago so so 30 years 25 years later yeah, yeah. so yeah. I think this, the, 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 what I mean is just the, the speed of the spread of this invention Right. Is, is really striking. But yeah, I agree yeah, that there is, yeah. there, I mean, there is a basic similarity, that's why I'm talking about it. Now, I, I think what basically happened with the invention of social media is two things. So, you know, you go from 1550 to 1990, and this is going to sound bizarre, you essentially live in the same world, right? Which is to say, you have one too many communication, which is to say that for a select number of people who have means and capital or access to it, you can spread your views from one central point to the rest of the population, right? You're somebody who has a printing press and the money to um, to use it and to distribute all of those books and so on and so forth. You can get your voice out. You were sitting in, in Atlanta at CNN in 1990. You can broadcast events live all around the world. But most people can't, right? Okay, so what happens after 1990? Well, first of all, you have... Um, the invention of the internet and the democratization of one-to-many communication. So suddenly anybody 
can make a website, georgdietz.com, right? And and very cheaply, you can reach the whole world. They call it Spiegel, but... Uh, <laughs> well, well you're, you're, you're part of the old elite. You're, you're, you're part of the losers of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but how do, but here's the difference, right? When people want to read you, they go to Spiegel, they see your writing, but they don't know to go to georgdietz.de, yeah. right? We have lower numbers, unfortunately. On, um, so, so there's still a little bit of a constraint. You have democratized one-to-many communication, but there's still some reasons that favor Spiegel over the private website. Well, then you have mention of social media, and that's the shift. Remember, Clay Shirky talks a lot about a lot of these things, um, uh, and you get a shift from one-to-many communication to many-to-many communication. So suddenly, it's enough, um, you know, for me to have a video of somebody being reaccommodated on a United Airlines flight, or of a cute cat video, or of a terrorist beheading somebody. And even if I don't have many followers, if it's of sufficient interest to the people who are following my feed, it's going to spread very quickly and reach millions of people in the space of an hour or two, right? And so that really reduces the gap between elites and everybody else. Um, it makes it much easier for ordinary people to challenge elites and therefore to challenge a political consensus. And it's turning out, and we're learning, that you need a political consensus in order to keep a political system on even queue. Mm. Right now, by the way, in dictatorships, that's a good thing. Yeah. Because it allows a democratic opposition to challenge dictators much more robustly and so on. But in democracies, it's a... But dictators are also pretty good at using, taking advantage of the weaknesses of this, I mean, in terms of uh, uh, hijacking or uh, spreading propaganda and uh, I guess surveillance is the... uh, It's unlimited now. Maybe sort of to shift the conversation a little bit towards uh-huh. not the <laughs> constructive, but towards the, the question of, of solution uh, journalism. Solution journalism now um, towards the as you say the, the question of uh, <laughs> don't make fun of me. For being, uh, I, I, I'm 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 getting to the point of uh, thrashing social democrats. By the way, oh, so, yeah. so you shouldn't yeah, be so cheaper your... here. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm um, used to it. So. You say cohesion. You say sort of what is a society basically? That is that is a fundamental question that's asked through populism in a way that's challenged by populism. And and if I understand your book, the age of responsibility, correctly, you you deal with that that shift sort of how what what makes a society sort of how how mm-hmm. and, and 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 the disruption from within by the conservative by the right Reagan um, in the seventies before. For actually going into power, so that discourse started. I mean, it's mm-hmm. basically a discourse that, that started after World War II, but but the, the dismantling of the sense of that there is a shared project that's a society that that is sort of um, now coming to that conclusion in a way, so that this is all falling apart. But I'm interested in sort of how how, how you see that connection, and 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 you're very critical about the role of, of Bill Clinton and and, and third way. So social democracy. Well, I am. Blair. I am too, and I'm, I'm still a social democrat. <laughs> I know. I was. I was. I was just trying to see if you're, yeah, yeah. Um, you probably would fall for that. But uh, yeah, I know you're on the right side of this, on this argument. This puts a very entertaining. <laughs> I think nobody listens to this podcast for the content of a guest. Just to just to observe this is yes, this is yes, <laughs> So how, how? I guess my question would be really why? Why did? I mean, why Reagan did it, so the dismantling of the social contract or the welfare state, the concept of that, that's pretty clear, that's their, their project. But what, what, what's, what's the project? Why did social democrats fall for that? What's the consequence of that? And what's the 
the debris now? What's the how, how can you rebuild a left that's basically destroyed from within? Without without turning to Chavez, without sort of to Mélenchon, to maybe yeah, to those more. Well, I mean, I think I'm not sure that I would go quite as far as you did in your description. I mean, I think what is true and what I describe in in, in the age of responsibility is, you know, a shift from thinking of a welfare state as a social safety net that's there to catch a fall of everybody and to help them get up back up on their feet, um, sort of irrespective of why it is that they're in free fall, to a welfare state that tracks responsibility. Instead of buffering responsibility, instead of helping you, even if you've made bad choices, it starts to track your responsibility. And essentially says, let's rebuild the welfare state so that you know if you're in need because you're disabled, um, because you're sick, because your employer fired you for no real reason of your own, then we're going to help you, right? But if you're in need because you've acted responsibly, right, because you've um, uh, kept turning up late to work or because you're not searching for work actively enough uh, and so on, then we don't really owe you anything. And I think that is quite a big shift now we think about our society and I think it has bad consequences for economic policy, Right. Um, now, it's true that this is a much larger societal shift, uh, as most big policy changes are, by the way. Um, and so it certainly emanates very much from the right, but it ends up being shared in by politicians of the center-left, and even in many ways, political philosophers who would consider themselves to be on the far left, like egalitarians. Like I don't have to go into that. So I think it's, you know, I don't think this is about blaming a particular party side of a political spectrum. It's about understanding a complicated intellectual shift that's taking place and it's underpinned a lot of our politics. Uh, so how do you so build you say it's not tactical. It wasn't tactical at the time. It was more more the zeitgeist of... Well, a little bit of both. I mean, you know, I mean, politicians are always both good at trying to win elections and good at understanding what the zeitgeist is and you sort of have to capture the zeitgeist in order to win an election, right? So I think those two things sort of go together, right? Um, and it was also responding to some real problems and failings with the welfare state and some real problems and failings with economic structures, right? I mean, it did in part have welfare states that incentivize people not to work and so on, right? So, so there are some real problems that they were responding to as well. Um, so I think the question now is to say, well, look, how do you build a society that does a bunch of these things? Some of the things that Khan was talking about, about the nation state. Mm. And some things about the welfare state. No, I think actually Sweden is not doing a bad job of that. Which is to say, how do you build a system that does support people who fall through the cracks without asking too many questions and thereby actually allows them to take risks? It's good for a 23 year old to be able to quit a job that's not fulfilling to them, that they don't feel develops them in order to go and start a new company. Right? Mm-hmm. But in order for them to be able to do that and to have the freedom to do that, they need to know that if that company fails, they're not going to be without healthcare, they're not going to be without a minimal income, and they'll have some time to retrain or to get on their feet again, right? So that's not a responsibility tracking welfare state. That's a wealth state with buffers responsibility, but it actually can be designed in such a way that it encourages economic risk-taking and entrepreneurship and all of those kinds of things. I mean, the Swedish welfare state is quite good at that, which is why you have a higher number of per capita startups in Sweden than you do in the United States, Right? Now, speaking about the national level, I think there was a sense of globalization being inevitable and of the only solutions to it being at the international level. 
and I think both more hope for real international cooperation on those things, which US center left governments, by the way, did try and pursue. Um, and a lack of understanding of how much would still remain in the purview of a nation state. And I think, you know, a number of decades on, we have a slightly changed view of that. We've both seen how difficult it is to have real international governance of some of those things. And we start to understand that even uh, Google and even Facebook still need access to territoriality. They still need access to Sweden in order to sell their iPhones. They still need access to it in order to sell their ads to Swedish-based companies and so on. And so I think there's actually ways to be open to globalization, which we should absolutely be, not least because if you're a good man of the left, Georg, and uh, or woman of the left, um, and you care about international developments, yes. you need to recognize that it's been yeah. a huge boon to people internationally. And this is a very important thing that, that the left in Western countries takes, sort of forgets in, in quite disastrous ways often, I think. Um, but you need to be able to shape the distributional outcomes of that. And so making sure that Apple and Facebook and Starbucks and all those companies pay some real tax when they're present in Sweden is the obvious way of doing that. And there's ways of doing that, but we're not against globalization. We're not against these companies coming in. We're not against these companies changing the way the economy works. We just make to make sure that at the national level, because that's the only realistic thing for now, we put in place rules that ensure that the gains from those developments are then broadly shared. So, um, it was interesting, I think, uh, just building on what you've been talking about. Now, it was interesting to be in the U.S. Uh, over the presidential election last year and then talk to political uh, scientists and uh, economists after the election. And yep. I had this f distinct feeling of, you know, people waking up um, by the, sho the shock, kind of waking them up and saying, well, we haven't thought enough about uh, distribution. And obviously there are some people around who are not, uh, who, are not uh, who do not feel included in our political project. And it seems kind of late. Uh, and But there seems to be this, I don't know, growing consensus of thinkers in this field kind of moving to the left, moving towards uh, ideas of um, stronger safety nets, uh, more distribution as a as a guard against uh, these totalitarian, authoritarian ideas. And um, would you agree? Uh, would you agree with it? With the fact that this that is happening or that it's good or? No, that it's happening, that there is I this think so, shift yeah. in thinking. Uh, that Less in the United States perhaps, but yeah. to some degree in the United States and probably more strongly in Europe, yeah. Mm. And I guess my other just reflection about what you said is, uh, I mean, the tragedy of the whole I do believe that you have to go back to your um, uh, national constituencies if you don't um, if you don't feel that you have the mandate of, if people are feeling left out. But the whole point of um, social democracy, or, or it was also always an international idea. It was all, always about building coalitions across borders and not only being, uh, you know, worrying about your own people, but trying to lift people, you know, uh, uh, on a global level. And that idea today just seems completely dead. Uh, what do you, do you, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the first thing I would say on that is not to do any harm would be a start, right? I mean, when you see a lot of left-wing movements now in the United States and a lot of Europe, um, you know, they would actively inflict harm, economic harm on poorer countries by being mm. more protectionist and so on, yeah. right? And so I think actually starting with defending the elements of the current order that do allow 
um, countries to develop into trade is is a really important starting point, right? Um, you know, I, I think it's tough right now to make arguments for great international solidarity because people yeah. are feeling like the force of globalization are sort of uh, the explosive force of globalization and um, and we're doing badly anyway and sort of they need of all the help they can get. Um, so I don't know what to do with that because I agree that we continue to have international obligations um, uh, and that we should have effective development aid um, and all of those things and, and I think it, for the moment maybe regard battle it may be a question of making sure that those budgets don't get cut too much and so on um, but but I do think that in the long run I mean having a working international order with a working globalized system is the best thing we can do for a lot of people in poorer parts of the world and it's important to note that further inequality has grown in virtually each country in the world it's actually reduced if you take the whole world as one population that uh, sounds like it's not possible, but it is possible mathematically. It's a little paradox. Yeah, it's the Milanovic elephant chart. I mean, the rise of the millions, the middle classes in India and China. Yeah, but yeah. the elephant chart is one of the things that shows that, right? Mm -hmm. But even if you look specifically at the Gini coefficient across the world, yeah. um, it's actually fallen. It's actually become more equal because um, countries like China and India that used to be at the bottom of the distribution have, have, have gained so much more quickly than countries like like Germany and France and so on. And that's something to defend and to celebrate, actually. That's interesting. It's interesting that you say somehow that there's a lack of possible narrative for how to move forward mm -hmm. as, as as a world. And, and I'm just curious, I mean, you're in the good fight, as your podcast mm -hmm. is called, so you're Thank you for plugging it. The, um, the Good Fight podcast. <laughs> Should all listen to it. So you're in it for... It's called cross-promotion. <laughs> so you're in it for sort of to, to, to change something. And, and, and it's maybe no coincidence that, as Karin points out, there's a lack of uh, vision for international solidarity or responsibility. I think that's quite a good, good term, actually, for the 21st century uh, in general. At the moment where people realize, I'm just don't be an asshole with people in the 21st century. <laughs> that's so no, 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 it's not enough. Yasha, come on. Responsibility is so much more inspiring. I don't know. No, I don't know. Just something more forward-looking. But no, no, just I, don't be an ass. I mean, that's <laughs> you should ask more of people than that. <laughs> so my point is, good people, people, okay. start. Don't okay, be an okay, asshole. Okay. People realize that Kill. the 21st century won't work. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the gloomy guy now. <laughs> Climate change, climate catastrophe, the Anthropocene, the way the world sort of is shaped by man in a way that is that we're really for once in it together in a way. So, and that's the that's the parallel system. <laughs> you think it's too big a question for no, it to answer? The last, the, yeah, this is the last question. <laughs> no, but but I'm just curious. Is there um, what's the question? <laughs> I'm looking for can, the question. Can, 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 can you come so from where from where do you see the potential to come up with an ethic or, or with a the, the support foundation for, for a different responsibility worldwide, the coalition, the international thinking. So I, I agree that the, the, the fallback option on the national state is something to stabilize, but it's not, there's, there's no vision around that. It's just status quo. I'm going to give you, I'm going to semi-dodge the question and give you a psychological answer rather than a political answer, right? I mean, I think in terms of values, I think we have those. I think the values for liberal democracy continue to be inspiring when we talk about them, which we don't enough. We don't proselytize them. Um, 
journalists and academics and writers and ordinary people, I think, can be a little abashed to say, you know, well, our task is somehow to tell people how great our political system is and why it's worth surviving. It seems sort of hokey. Certainly, my faculty colleagues in Harvard uh, prefer to talk just about sort of the bad things and how bad things are, which is often true and which is important to point out. But to sort of, if I, if I told people, well, one of my goals is to turn students and more broadly for us as, as countries to turn children into citizens who are proud to defend the, the good things from a political system. I think I would think well, that's weird and hokey and so on. So I think we have the values um, and we just need to defend them um, more, more, more aggressively and more optimistically. Now, uh, the other thing that I want to say is the psychological answer, which is it's only going to work if we're going to be able to instill optimism in people. Whether it's climate change or whether it's economic developments, as long as people think, if you ask people about climate change, look, it's a huge catastrophe looming, you need to, you know, stop the way you're living now and not take the plane to go on holiday and, you know, not have heating in the winter, not have air conditioning in the summer, they're going to say, uh, you know what, um, uh, I'm not I'm not on board with this. I want to keep living as I am. We're telling them it's climate change. Who knows what's going to happen? If you tell them, no, we can deal with climate change in an effective way, and you can still have a better economic future. You can still have your comfortable car. You can still have central heating at night. And there's ways of making the energy transition towards renewables and so on work without it meaning that you can't have a decent life. I think people are much more likely to be willing to go along with that. Now I would say the same thing about international solidarity and so on. If you can root that in an account of a global economy in which your nation state is going to stand up for you and make sure that you're getting a fair shake and your economic future is going to be better, you are going to have a better life than your parents did. But by the way, there's also these ways in which we can help people internationally. I think we're much more likely to do that than if we present it as a zero-sum game or leave them to be pessimistic about the future. Okay, uh, I think we'll just, uh, I have yeah, that's could be the starting point for a whole new <laughs> episode of this podcast. But um, I think we'll end there. Uh, I, that's the good fight um, that you're describing. The good fight podcast. The yes. good fight. No, the good fight in do, more general I'm going terms. Cross promote my book it, as well. <laughs> yes, uh, sure, I can. We did, didn't we? We did, we did. Well, it's called, no, my last the book. New book. Oh, the, the new book. book. The new book. The new book. book. The book where I talk about all of these things and explain. It's called The People versus Democracy, people Why versus Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Oh. There you go. There you it's go. It's inspiring. So uh, we'll buy two copies of that book. Well, it's out in the spring. <laughs> in the spring. You can order it now. And, <laughs> and we'll uh, give it to uh, our listeners. Wonderful. As, uh, thank you. Uh, Great. For you being on this podcast. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Karin, for your patience. <laughs> I, I love you guys. This is so entertaining. <laughs>